Our scripture is Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Caitlin is here to read our scripture for us. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you bow with me? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. We are the clay. Mold us and make us after thy will while we are waiting, yielded, and still. Amen. You may be seated. My very first clergy meeting 22 years ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. We were, it was at an overnight gathering. It, we used to call them uh, the bishop's retreats. And our bishop at that time would have these retreats that he would um, he would have all the clergy come together once a year, and we would spend a night or two at Canyon Camp, and we would talk about various aspects of ministry. It was a time of, of learning together. It was a time of learning from the bishop, and it was also a, a wonderful time of conversation and discussion. And so I was brand new, fresh out of seminary. I was, I was farm fresh, as they say. And so we got into a conversation about, uh, about things in the table that I was, around the table that I was sitting at. And so the topic of the resurrection of Jesus came up. And so um, I started talking about the centrality of the belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, those of you who may be tuning in or here in person and you're not exactly, well, what is the preacher talking about, the resurrection of Jesus? Well, let me tell you. So as Christians, we believe, we believe that three days after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus was crucified, on the third day, he was brought back to life. This wasn't just a resuscitation. This wasn't just a, 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 as if God was there uh, doing CPR on him. It was not just uh, some sort of uh, mystical experience and he came back as a, as a ghost or a spirit. No, this was a resurrection. This was a bodily resurrection. And so we were talking about that around our table. And, and being as green as I was, I just, I just assumed that all of my clergy colleagues were very clear on the resurrection. Well, little did I know. <laughs> 
And so that conversation quickly turned to our attention to three or four of the six that were surrounding that table that had some real questions about the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, they said, now, whoa, 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 wait just a minute now. Wait, now, I'm not sure that we all have to believe in a bodily resurrection, they said. I was, I was aghast. And so just, uh, I mean, I, I felt um, I wasn't exactly sure how to respond or how to reply. And so I, I stepped back from the conversation just a little bit and, and let, them have, let them have their conversations. And so immediately the, the, um, the conversation turned around to, so who, was, who is Jesus? I mean, uh, uh, so my, my, some of my colleagues, they talked about the, the great teachings of Jesus. They talked about Jesus being a prophet. They talked about Jesus... Um, being someone who, who acted with incredible compassion. Someone that had really had, no one ha- who has ever lived was like Jesus. The way that he acted with compassion, the way, I mean, he had these miraculous, miraculous gifts of healing and he shared with those, he shared with those who were sick and those who were on the fringes of culture and he reached out to the, to the broken and he reached out to the outcast and those who were left out, he reached out to the poor and we talked about those things um, until, I, until I jumped into the conversation just a bit and said, you know, I think Jesus may have been more than just a teacher. I think that, I mean, I think, I mean, a central tenet of Christianity is that Jesus was divine. And again, I was taken aback <laughs> at some of their responses. What I thought was once understood and as taken as fact from basically every Christian, I have since learned that that's not necessarily the case at all. Last month, a ministry by the name of Ligonier Ministries Uh, They released a survey that they had conducted around the United States. They they interviewed I think it was 3,000 people for this uh, for this survey And so it was not a huge huge survey, but but they say that it that it really did um, Get at the very heart of of faith when it comes to um, When it comes to Americans and so they asked one of the questions that they asked is do you believe do you believe that Jesus was uh, a, a good moral teacher, or do you believe that he was divine? Do you believe that he was just a good moral teacher, or do you believe that he was that he was divine? And if I can, there we go. So on this first slide shows the shows the responses from Americans, uh, adults in America in general. So those of you, those people who who who. Have, who strongly agree that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, are those respondents on, on the left. Uh, there are a number of people who are, were not sure in this survey. Those who believe that, those who disagree with this statement, that Jesus was, again, the statement was that Jesus is a great teacher, but he is not divine. Those who disagreed with that are on, are on uh, the, the right side. And so the, the, the finding of this survey was that 52% of Americans agree that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not divine. Now, I'll be honest, this, the finding here, when it came to surveying America, does not surprise me. I mean, we've all come to recognize that we are living in a post-Christian culture, meaning that this is not a Christian culture at all. 
In fact, we are in the minority in the United States, those of us who are active in our faith. By the way, there are, I mean, upwards of 80% of Americans say that they are Christians, but well less than half, far fewer than half of Americans are, are, in, are, are active in their faith at all. And really, it, it really those who are in worship on any particular Sunday, and again, this was pre-COVID, not during COVID, uh, pre-COVID days, it was around 30 to 35% of Americans are in church at some sort of worship service on any given Sunday. And so in reality, there really are few Americans that really are engaged in their faith. And so this isn't particularly a surprise to me. However, what was surprised What was surprising is that they asked those who consider themselves evangelicals. Now again, that's a loaded term in today's culture. Uh, To be an evangelical for uh, for for the mass media out there, the term evangelical is almost viewed as a political party, and that's not, that's what not what Christians would understand as as an evangelical. And evangelical among Christians are those who are traditional Christians. We would consider ourselves orthodox Christians. We would consider ourselves as people who, um, well, we believe in the orthodox aspects and the key tenets of our faith. The shocking thing in this survey was that only 30 percent, or excuse me, only 66 percent of those Evangelicals across America, only 66% disagreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, meaning that there are 30% of evangelicals who do not believe that Jesus was divine. There are a number of things that tells me. One, we as a church, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about first church as well, we as a church, we have done an atrocious job teaching the core tenets of our faith. The second thing that I, that, that I think this tells me is that we have done a horrific job as well when it comes to theology. Because I believe, and I believe, and this is one of the things that we're going to talk briefly on this morning, I believe that if, that if we believe that Jesus was not divine, our entire faith falls apart. Our entire faith falls apart. Today we're continuing our sermon series dealing with these children's stories. And I put that in air quotes, although, you know, that's an old, uh, old kind of thing to do. Uh, this is children's story. Uh, these are stories that are told on felt board. These are stories that uh, are from our childhood. We remember them from our childhood. But we have found that these stories have deep and significant theological meaning and Um, and purpose in our lives. These are deep, deep, deep stories. Our story today comes, uh, is found in all three synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so if we look at this story really with all of those perspectives, and again, um, they really weren't necessarily, this story comes in a different timeline in all three of the gospels. It takes place at a different time in Jesus' ministry. But in all three gospels, it appears as though it took place kind of in the same area. They were, they were telling the story, and, they, and it took place in the same area. In Mark's gospel, we find that this took place in Capernaum. 
You remember last week that we were talking about the, the Sea of Galilee? Well, Capernaum was one of those nine cities, nine villages that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. And so um, Mark's gospel says that Jesus was teaching there uh, in Capernaum. He was teaching in a house, and he was, teaching to, he was teaching to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, I mean, we, we've been around church long enough, most of us, and we kind of know who the Pharisees are. They were the religious zealots of the day. They were those that... that um, they were, in some sense, trying to keep control of the people. They believed that you that it was not just the priests who had to leave, had, who had to lead blameless lives. It was not just um, the priests who had to keep all of the Old Testament laws. No, it was everyone. They said, and so they were they were very very strict in the keeping of. The law. They were very, very strict in the keeping of the law, especially the old, uh, especially the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were supreme, and everyone, absolutely everyone, must keep the Ten Commandments at all times. And so, one of the commandments is, you may know, one of the commandments is, for example, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so what does it mean to remember the Sabbath? What does it mean to, to keep it holy? And another time it, it talks about not doing work on the Sabbath. So, so the Pharisees began to ask themselves, so what does it mean then, to, again, to keep the Sabbath holy? What might it mean? What might it mean then to not do work? And so they developed laws upon laws upon laws upon laws. There was the written law of the Old Testament, and then there were the oral traditions of the Old Testament as well. Not only were there 639 Old Testament laws, but then there were thousands, literally thousands and thousands more laws that everyone had to follow. So this is who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the Pharisees and also Luke's Gospel says, the teachers of the law. These would have been the, the legal experts for the Pharisees. These would have been the Pharisees of the Pharisees, if you can imagine that. These would have been people who uh, their entire lives, their entire livelihoods were, were spent looking at the law and making sure that everyone Absolutely everyone was obeying every jot and every tittle. Every dot and every cross of the T, everyone was abiding by the law. Luke says that these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, they had come from all over the region. And so, obviously, the house, the house was full. There he was. There he was teaching them. What he's teaching them, we're not exactly sure. I would suspect that he's teaching them about grace. They had a real struggle with grace and God's undeserved love. They really struggled with that, with that concept. And then the story takes a turn. There were four men, as we find in Mark's gospel, four men had a friend who had been lame, who was lame who could not walk. And again, as I shared with the children, in those days, they didn't, obviously did not have a wheelchair. There was not an American with Disabilities Act. There were no ramps into buildings. No, nothing like that at all. If you could not walk, you were reliant. You were reliant upon others to take care of you at all times. 
You were absolutely and completely helpless. And so there were four men who had a friend who could not walk. And so they had heard about this Jesus, not only the four men, but also the man who was lame. They had heard about Jesus and they thought, because earlier in chapter 5 in Luke's gospel, we find that Jesus has already performed, begun to perform some miracles. And so the word had already gotten out about Jesus. In, uh, in one of the other Gospels, Jesus had just cast out demons into the, into the swine. And, and so there were some miracles going on in the life of Jesus. They had heard about them. And so they wanted to take this, they wanted to bring this young man or this man who was lame into the presence of Jesus. They tried to get into the door, but the religious leaders wouldn't let them. I'll be, I'll be honest, I've been in some of those kinds of churches. <laughs> you, you, had to, you had to dress a certain way. You, you, had, you had to be right. You had to be right in order to be let in. They wouldn't let him in. They wouldn't let them in. Now, to our 21st century ears, this sounds like an odd scene. How in the world did they get up on the roof? Did they, did they carry a ladder with them? How, did, how in the world? Well, let me, let me give you a few details about a first century uh, ancient Near East construction. The construction was such that the walls and the roofs were made, I mean, it was adobe kind of thing. It was kind of stucco. It was mainly uh, twigs and mud is really what it was. It was twigs and mud. And normally, because, uh, because the nights were cool, but the, but the days were very, very hot, they would typically spend their days inside, uh, in, typically in a one- or two-room house. They were almost always one-story homes uh, because they hadn't quite figured out about the weight of the second story. So mo most of the homes were one-story homes. There may have been a cave underneath uh, some of those homes, but they would have spent their days out of, out of the sun, in the shade on that first floor. But then at night, typically, they would go up onto the roof in order to sleep because the nights were cool. And so there was almost always some sort of way to get up to the roof. Typically, it was some sort of stairway. Uh, it likely would not have had rails, <laughs> according to ADA um, compliance, but they would have been able to get onto the roof fairly, fairly easy. And so these men decided that they had to get this man to Jesus. They had to get their friend to Jesus. And so they went up to the roof. Uh, a fascinating aspect or a fascinating detail in Mark's gospel says that they began, uh, they began, to, they went up on the roof and they let him they let him down with his bed through the tiles, through the tiles. And so uh, there, there was tiles on the roof of this house. Tiles, uh, archaeologists tell us that tiles had just been invented. Tiles had just been invented, especially for roofing materials. Up, again, up to that point, it was typically uh, kind of thatch types of roofs or they would lay uh, branches on the tops of roofs or it simply would be that mud and twig kind of mixture. But now they began to discover they could put tile on the tops of their roofs and so when a heavy rainstorm came it wouldn't wash away their roofs but instead it would shed the water. And so you can just imagine the scene and this is really where this story becomes famous because we can begin to imagine the scene. These men up on the roof, and they're beginning to tear the tiles off the roof. They're beginning to dig through the roof. I can only begin to imagine what was going on inside. 
with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and with Jesus' teaching, I'm sure they were wondering what in the world is all of that racket? I mean, it, it engages our imagination, doesn't it? I wonder how much dirt and how much grime uh, fell on all of the Pharisees and on all of the teachers of the law and even on Jesus. But regardless, regardless, this man who was lame then found himself lowered at the very feet of Jesus. And again, up to this point, this has been a children's story, all out a children's story. But now, now it turns to a very, very deep adult and theological theme. And when he saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw the faith of these four men who had brought their friend, when Jesus saw the faith of the man who was laying in front of him on a mat, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Whoa. <laughs> this is not what the man came for, was it? I mean, he, he's not able to walk. He's lame. He has to have someone take care of him. He can't earn a living. He, he can't do anything for himself. He didn't come. He didn't come for his sins to be forgiven, or so he thought. Man, your sins are forgiven. And immediately, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were taken aback. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the worst crime, the worst crime that you could commit within the framework of Judaism was blasphemy. Was blasphemy because blasphemy was a direct assault on God and they revered and they revered God. In the Jewish tradition, there were, there were three ways that you could blaspheme God. One, you could speak evil of the law of God. You could say, of this law. You know, these are just made-up myths. Moses, he really didn't hear from God on that, on that mountain. These are just, just made-up. Absolutely made-up. That's one of the ways that you could blaspheme God. Again, to speak evil of the law of God. You may remember that when the Apostle Paul came to Jerusalem after his last missionary journey, the, 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 the religious hierarchy accused him of speaking against the law. They accused him of blasphemy. That was a kind of blasphemy. Again, an attack on Scripture. That was the first way you could blaspheme God. The second step in blasphemy was to slander God himself or to speak evil of him. To reject the law, to, to depreciate the law, uh, to curse the law, to scorn the law, that was bad. But worse, worse than, worse than speaking against the law was to curse God. To speak evil against God himself. To use the name of the Lord in vain, as the Ten Commandment puts it. But the worst of all, the third kind of blasphemy, the worst of all, was to put something 
in, its, in his place as God, any idol or any other god in violation of the first commandment, worshiping any idol raised up in the place of God, that was the absolute worst thing that you could do. But a step even beyond that. The worst form of blasphemy was to act as if you were God. Blasphemy upon blasphemy upon blasphemy. Claiming to be able to forgive sins, saying to this man that your sins now are forgiven, that you're exonerated, that you must, that you must, that you've been moved from a category of guilty to the innocent, from from now being from moving from being unjust to the just. This is more than the Pharisees and the and the teachers of the law can stand. They couldn't stand it anymore. Jesus was putting himself in the place of God when he forgave this man's sins. Wouldn't stand for it anymore. This man, they said to themselves, is talking like he is God, and no one is God but God alone. One of the takeaways from this story is that Jesus was very clear as he pronounced the forgiveness of sins to this man, and it wasn't just that he pronounced it, he, for, he forgave this man's sin. You see, there's a difference between pronouncing the forgiveness of sins. So, for example, if someone wrongs me, if, if, if Amy calls me a nasty, dirty name, uh, I, I, would, I could forgive her, I suppose. I probably would forgive her after a while, probably. I could forgive her because she had wronged me. However... However, if Amy sinned against the Lord, to be honest, there's nothing I can do about it. Absolutely nothing that I can do about it. Other than I could pronounce to her the Lord's forgiveness, but it's only the Lord that could forgive my wife. God is the only one who can forgive. And so when Jesus is telling this man, your sins are forgiven, not just pronouncing it, but he is forgiving this man's sin. Jesus is standing in the place of God. No doubt about it, dear sisters and brothers. Our Lord Jesus Christ referred to him as referred to himself as divine. And those who say that Jesus is not divine are outside of orthodox Christianity. There's no doubt in my mind. And dear sisters and brothers, the things that we are going through as a denomination, the things that we are going through as a church in the West, we are battling over the very heart of our faith. We are battling over the very heart of our faith. Those who say that Jesus was just a good guy, that Jesus was, good, was just a good teacher, a good prophet, that says that Jesus was no different than anyone else. Jesus was no different than you and me. God help us. I've even heard United Methodist bishops say things like this. And it's not just in our beloved United Methodist Church. It's in Christianity all across America. Again, did you hear those statistics? 30% of those who consider themselves evangelical Christians deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what. Again, I said it earlier. 
our faith rises and falls upon the divinity of Jesus. If Jesus was not divine, if he was just another good teacher, the whole thing collapses. The whole thing collapses. If Jesus was not divine, well then his death on the cross means nothing. If Jesus was not divine, his resurrection indeed was just, was just spiritual. He wasn't really physically brought back to life. It's just a myth that was made up by the New Testament writers. But I'm here to tell you today that I have staked my life, I have staked my career, I have staked everything on this, that Jesus Christ is God. And we must be unequivocal. Unequivocal in our statements about the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus cannot, as C.S. Lewis said, Jesus cannot be just a good teacher. Because he would, he would then neither be good nor a good teacher. He would have been a whack job. Who in their right mind would stand in the place of God and tell everyone that I am God? That's the, that's the kind of statements that a religious fanatic would say. Oh, indeed, those religious fanatics, they may have followings for a while. And there may even be people centuries down the road that might, that might give their lives for that religious fanatic, but not their closest friends. Not their closest followers. Not within months. Not within months of Jesus' death and resurrection were Christians beginning to put, be put to death. They knew. Those early Christians were convinced. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had met God himself in Jesus Christ. We must be very, very clear of who Jesus of who Jesus is only God only God can forgive sins when we say we stand in need of forgiveness what do we mean by that well that means we've got some stuff we got some baggage We've got some skeletons in our closet. We've got some things that we've, that we've tried to hide from others and we just sweep them under the rug. Hoping and praying that those things will always stay there. But what i found is that the more baggage that we, to mix metaphors a bit, but the more baggage that we begin to carry on our, on our backs, the more weighed down, the more and more and more weighed down we get, the heavier the burden there is. I know people who have been carrying around burdens for decades. Things that they are ashamed of. Things that they know about and everybody else knows about. Everybody around town saw this thing played out. And they're so deeply, deeply ashamed. I know people who have been carrying around secrets for years and years and years and years. Addictions that no one else knows about. 
unforgiveness of our heart, broken relationships, burdens that weigh us down year after year after year. Dear sisters and brothers, there is only one who can forgive, and that is Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you smell like. Jesus Christ wants to say, your sins are forgiven. Notice that this man came to Jesus so that he might be healed. Jesus recognized the most important thing that he needed was not physical healing. The most important thing he needed was forgiveness. It's the same with you and with me. The most important thing in all of the world that I need and that you need is divine forgiveness. And only Jesus Christ can do that. He's the only one. And so there may be some who are watching on this Sunday or Lord knows how the internet works, maybe some other time. I think it was a divine appointment that those of you who are here in worship and those of you who are joining online, I think it was a divine appointment that you were here today. You needed to hear this message. There may be some, in fact, I think it's more than maybe, there are some who are watching today and who are carrying around a burden that they've never been able to let go of. They've never felt that, that easy and light yoke of obedience to Jesus Christ. They think that they have to carry around their baggage themselves. They have to carry around all of that junk, all of that past. I'm here to tell you, you don't have to anymore. No more. No matter what you're coming to Jesus for today, He wants you to experience forgiveness and freedom from sin. Would you bow with me? So I would ask right there where you are. Just keeping your eyes closed and your head bowed. I would invite you to just simply spend a moment telling the Lord what it is that that's in your baggage. Those things that you've been lugging around for year after year. Those sins that you have never told anyone else about. Those wrongdoings. And just quietly repeat after me then. Lord, these are my sins. And I need forgiveness. I know that forgiveness can only come through you. Lord, I want to rise up and walk. But more so, I want to experience your forgiveness. 
Lord, help me to experience your forgiveness in a new way today. Help me to experience your salvation. Come and save me, Lord, from my sins. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.